the uh, river gravel again for ballast. Yes. Yeah, so that's, you can see it clearly here. Just, yeah. just see if he, if he won't down there and it, it, he fall into the river just there. So camp just over here. Yeah. Rail line going straight through here. And another bridge about, I don't know, 50 metres that's that way. Just like, uh, if, you, if you look at a map of this, you'll see bridge, railway bridge, railway bridge, railway. Just goes like ding, 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 ding all across. Uh, cemetery was down there somewhere, I think. I'm in a field with Andrew Snow in Western Thailand. Around us are fields of cassava, a starchy, edible root better known as tapioca. Andrew's showing me what was the route of the Thai-Burma Railway. If he hadn't have shown me, I would have never have guessed that there was once a railway here at all. Nothing remains. No tracks, no bridges, no station. The cemetery's gone too. The only evidence that a railway was once here is the gravel under our feet. Gravel brought here from a nearby riverbed to serve as ballast for the railway line. The parts of this railway famously do still exist. Two days earlier, I was in Kanchanaburi, whose claim to fame is that it's home of the legendary bridge on the River Kwai, made famous by the 1957 movie with Alec Guinness. It's what sparked my interest in this story when I moved to Thailand. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know how true the story actually was. So I googled it. I bought a book, and then another, and then I went to Kanchanaburi. There, I visited the Thai Burma Railway Centre and spoke to its founder, Andrew's colleague, Rod Beatty. Rod's dedicated 30 years of his life to exploring the railway, unearthing evidence about it, and generously sharing his knowledge with anyone who's interested. Before meeting him, I explored his museum and I read his book. And something in his book immediately caught my attention. So, Rod, thank you very much for speaking to me. I'm delighted that I've managed to grab this opportunity. Now, anyone reading your book will probably have a moment when they get to page five and you say there was no bridge over the River Kwai. In fact, there was no River Kwai. What do you mean by that, Rod? Absolutely, absolutely. Here in Kanchanaburi, and coming from the Gulf of Thailand, is the River Mekong. Okay, we'll work in reverse direction. From the Gulf, back up country, the River Mekong. Mm. Here in Kanchanaburi, it then divides into two tributaries. The main one heading north is the River Mekong. goes through Kanchanaburi and on northwards. It is joined by a smaller river, the Kwai, Kwai Noi, small river, comes from the northwest. Somehow I knew this story wouldn't be straightforward. Okay, so these two rivers then join here. The railway from Nongpaluk Banpong comes up the eastern side of the Mae Klong to Kanchanaburi. Passes through Kanchanaburi, a little bit further to Tamakan, and then cross the river Mae Klong. Mm. 
then swings back southwest west and then follows the Quay Noi all the way towards the Burmese border. Never crosses the, 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 the Quay Noi. It has already crossed the river May Klong mm. at the bridge that we all know of. Well, you've, you've done that. That sign to me is the bridge. So talk to me about the bridge that we all know about. Okay, the bridge. The Japanese found that in the Dutch East Indies in a railway workshop area compound. So it's a steel bridge that the Japanese stole from the Dutch East Indies, transported up here to Thailand to Canterbury on barges and then re-erected across the River Mekong using predominantly British prisoners of war of Group 1 mm. under their Japanese engineers. Mm. So there are over 600 bridges on this railway, but not a single one goes over the River Kwai. Absolutely. Okay. 688 bridges, yeah. seven steel and concrete, yeah. six of them being in Burma and one in Thailand. And that's and the one that people think is the bridge over the River Kwai. Is the River Kwai. And it quickly becomes apparent to me after speaking with Rod that the little I think I know about this story is very little and sometimes very wrong. So the bridge is just one part of a railway with 688 bridges, none of which, not one, ever went over the River Kwai. And notice how Rod pronounces the name of the river, Kwai, not Kwai. So not only does the bridge not go over the River Kwai, it doesn't go over the river Quay either. The river has been cleverly rebranded by the Thai tourist industry to satisfy the needs of those thousands of tourists who flock here every year to see the bridge on the river Kwai. Hollywood movies are much like populist politicians. They simplify complex events, give easy answers and ignore inconvenient truths. I quickly realised that the truth, as historians are fond of saying, is much more complex and often much more interesting than the myth. The bridge is actually part of a much larger story and a much larger project, the Thai-Burma Railway, also known as the Death Railway. A railway 415 kilometres long, stretching from Non Pladuk in Thailand to Thambusiat, Burma, now Myanmar with 61 stops or stations along the way, and during the construction period, over a 100 work camps, large and small, scattered all along those 415 kilometres. To put that distance into perspective, that's the equivalent of travelling in the UK from London Paddington to Penzance Cornwall. In Australia, it's just under half the distance between Sydney and Melbourne. And if you're in the US, it's longer than New York to Washington DC. It's a long way. So the bridge at Canterbury, I decide, is not the best place to start. It's the most obvious, perhaps, but not the best. I will return. But in order to understand what really happened here, I'm going to take a big step back. Firstly, I want to know who were the men who built this railway? Where did they come from? And in order to understand that, 
I'm going on a journey that will start 2,000 kilometres to the south of Kanchanaburi, in Singapore. Because it's from here, after what historians seem to agree is Britain's most ignominious defeat of the Second World War, that many of the Allied soldiers that worked on the railway began their grim adventure. My name's Nick Fordham. I've lived and worked in the Far East for over a decade, and ever since moving to Thailand two years ago, I've been fascinated by this story. And if, like me, you want to know what really happened here in Southeast Asia 80 years ago, why approximately 100,000 people died constructing a railway from Thailand to Burma, then join me as I revisit the Death Railway. Along the way, I'll speak with people who've dedicated decades to keeping the story of the railway alive. I'll talk to people whose relatives worked on the railway. And I'll even meet a man who was forced to work on the railway as a teenage boy. The people I speak to will be Australian, American, Canadian, English, Japanese, Malaysian, Singaporean and Thai. And each of them will bring a different and sometimes very personal perspective on what actually happened. And to get a first-hand contemporary perspective, I'll also be reading extracts from diaries, letters and memoirs from prisoners who were there and whose lives were forever shaped by their experiences building the Death Railway. I start my journey in a very wet Singapore. Well, I've arrived, and it's a slightly inauspicious day for the beginning of my journey. I'm in Singapore, and it's absolutely pouring down with rain. That type of rain that you only really see in this part of the world where it's so heavy that even with an umbrella you get soaking wet. The sky is incredibly grey, and this is the first day of my journey. So, we shall see what awaits. Singapore, that supposedly impregnable fortress that fell to the Japanese in February 1942 after a lightning-quick advance down the Malayan Peninsula. And anyone who thinks they know anything about the fall of Singapore tend to mention two things. First, that the British guns were all facing the wrong way. And secondly... Churchill's famous line that the fall of Singapore was the worst disaster in British history. In order to find out if this is true, I met up with Brian Farrell from the National University of Singapore and author of The Defence and Fall of Singapore. Brian suggests we meet at the Singapore Cricket Club, founded in 1852. The club building, bars and sports ground remind one of Singapore's colonial past. We sit outside on a balcony overlooking the cricket pitch and tennis courts. I began by asking if he agreed with the wartime leader's assessment. So, Brian, let's start with the classic Churchillian quote. Mm -hmm. It was the worst disaster 
and the largest capitulation in British history. Is this Churchillian hyperbole or is this truth? I think the second part of that statement is probably true in terms of the sheer numbers of troops under British command who were forced to surrender to the enemy. The first part is definitely Churchillian hyperbole. It was definitely the worst disaster on his watch. The most humiliating, the most embarrassing. It compromised Britain's position in the Pacific War. On the other hand, the Allies did not lose the Pacific War. And Britain, of course, had suffered worse imperial disasters. One thinks immediately of the loss of the American colonies in 1781, with all that that entailed. Mm. So here I think we see a master wordsmith pinning a label onto something that won't come off. And Brian quickly dismisses the other commonly held belief about the battle for Singapore. First, there is the myth that the great coastal defence guns were pointing the wrong way. That's yeah. the one that everyone yeah. knows, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, they were not. And I have a footnote in that book in which I list the line of authors of serious studies who published before me that have already attacked that myth. Yeah. It was already prostrate, dead on the ground before I took it up. Mm. And yet the public stubbornly clings to it and wishes to believe it because it's too good a trope. Yeah. Here are the slow, ponderous Brits looking the wrong way while the nimble, fast Japanese sneak in the back door. The coastal defense artillery did exactly what it was supposed to do. Mm. It deterred the Japanese from launching a direct amphibious seaborne invasion against Singapore, mm. which would have been the most rapid way to take the place. Mm. And the campaign would have ended in a week. It would have been over in mid-December. So I then asked Brian, if the guns were not the issue, how come a force of around 100,000 British and Allied soldiers capitulate to a Japanese foe less than half its size? Number one culprit would be the Japanese. I mean, so there they are, were just good. Yeah, there are times when you lose a cup final. It's not because you didn't execute your game plan or you didn't defend very well. It's because the, the, the other side was just better. Yeah. Uh, number one culprit would be the Japanese. They took some calculated risks, but they executed them uh, very, very competently, at sometimes almost at the level of brilliance, frankly, in terms of their tactical execution. They were acting with an audacity that the British neither expected nor could adapt to. So was defeat inevitable? Yes. But the big question is, uh, how fast did it have to happen and how easy did it have to be? The Brits certainly do what they can, but it's not much. It turns out to be not enough for a variety of reasons. But as we historians like to say, the fall of Singapore was over-determined. So the big question actually becomes a different question. Why did it fall so quickly and so easily, and with what effects? Yeah. And there it gets a little bit more complicated, and I think there's more than enough blame to go around there. And I think the phrase I used was that Percival was given a bad hand to play, but he played it badly. And that credit on that operational level must go to the Japanese as well for being audacious and getting away with it. Yeah. Yeah. General Percival. Poor man whose name will forever be tarnished with Britain's largest ever military defeat. He drives through what is devastation all around him. Destroyed vehicles, burning buildings, bodies all over the place. Uh, people covering under shelter, an army in defence and shell-shocked. This is Jaya Adre, founder and former director of the Changi Chapel Museum, discussing Percival's surrender. Singaporean historians are clearly a clubbable bunch, as he, like Brian, suggests we meet at the cricket club. It's a popular place. And on the evening we meet, every corner of the three floors of the clubhouse is, as you can hear, busy with people socialising. 
Percival is at this point being forced to go and speak to Yamashita simply because every man in his senior staff had told him they had no option but to surrender and at least for the sake of the civilian population that had been compressed into the city with just the waters behind them. Uh, and, and so you literally had destruction and mayhem. And when eventually the ceasefire comes into operation, everyone is shocked by the silence and the calm. Many remembered that silence. Captain Fred Stahl, a 32-year-old with the Royal Australian Corps of Signals, described it as frightening, almost intense, the all-pervading engulfing silence. As the day died and Singapore died, it seemed that we too were sinking into everlasting oblivion. Lieutenant Eric Lomax, a 22-year-old Scotsman with the Royal Corps of Signals and author of The Railway Man, later made into a famous film with Colin Firth, simply collapsed exhausted and slept for 24 hours straight. Neither he nor Stahl had slept properly for a week. Those that could not sleep stayed awake all night with thoughts and emotions racing through their minds. Louis Bohm, 23-year-old scion of a Swiss watchmaking family and keen mountaineer, wrote, Night has come. I foresaw all sorts of possibilities except this one, just waiting to be collected by the enemy. Waiting for what? We prefer not to think. Gloom, disappointment, relief, resentment, uncertainty, bewilderment. These are our mixed feelings this evening. Two days later, they found out their fate. On the 17th of February, all British and Australian troops are forced to march 21 kilometres north from central Singapore to the isolated Changi Peninsula. That march, there's a sense that there's quite humiliating and perhaps a deliberate choice to humiliate the soldiers as they're marched through the city to Changi Prison. Uh, a lot has been written about that. Yeah. But in essence, you're moving an army of almost 110,000. Yeah. Uh, the sheer scale of it now becomes a logistical nightmare. And the Japanese are just trying to move this force into concentrated areas where they can keep an eye on them. So the British and Australians are told to march towards Changi, mm. and the Indians, the largest force, uh, is sent to Salita Air, Air Base in the north. And so the vehicles that are available are largely for logistical uh, equipment, uh, whatever supplies it could garner, and for the wounded who need to be transferred by vehicles. The rest are forced to march. Um, and as marches go, to be honest, it's uh, slightly romanticized as being a uh, terrible uh, distance. Uh, but it is no, nothing, say, in comparison to the Bataan Death March, no, no. where literally many die along the way and are mistreated by the troops themselves. I was interested to read that among those who witnessed this force march was a young student, Lee Kuan Yew, future leader of an independent Singapore. He remembers, 
I saw them tramping along the road in front of my house for three solid days, an endless stream of bewildered men who did not know what happened, why it had happened, or what they were doing here in Singapore in any case. Of all the many prisoners on that march, none could have been more bewildered than the men of the British 18th Division. Among them was Harold Atchley, a 24-year-old English intelligence officer whose memoirs, Prisoner of Japan, recall three months at sea. At first they thought bound for Egypt. They stopped in Canada, the Caribbean, South Africa and India. They eventually arrived in Singapore less than three weeks before the surrender. They would spend the next three and a half years in captivity, starting in Changi. Perhaps equally bewildered were their Japanese conquerors. I asked Bran Farrell about the Japanese perspective on this famous capitulation. This quote here from Lieutenant Onishi, mm -hmm. talking about the Allied soldiers after surrendering. Right. He said, they showed no feeling of shame or of humility. They seemed to take it more like a sports event. They had lost one match. And then he says about the Japanese, but for the Japanese who'd given their life for this match, for whom the felling of the citadel of white colonial supremacy had meant everything, it created a strange impression. So I'm wondering, does this, in a way, affect the way that they treat allied POWs? That they're, they see there's something quite shameful about, about this capitulation in their eyes? It absolutely does. And I must add right away that what I'm about to say is not in any way to be seen as moral exculpation or even mitigation. Yeah. The fact of the matter is that for whatever combination of reasons, in the end they behaved abominably with great cruelty and huge numbers of people suffered as a result of sheer barbarism on the part of the Japanese army. Mm. However, first, they had not prepared for surrenders on this scale. Yeah. They had no infrastructure whatsoever, no dedicated military police units, no advance arrangements for POW reception and transport and feeding and housing, nothing. And they had to deal with two massive surrenders within a short space of time, here in Singapore and then in Luzon, in the Philippines. So second, they had to make up their minds suddenly on the spot, what are we going to do about this? In Singapore, that was relatively easy to deal with. You just marched them off to Changi, an isolated peninsula where there were only military facilities, and incarcerate them all there while you work out some sort of a policy. But in the Philippines, of course, the surrender took place when most of the surviving Filipino and American soldiers were in the southern part of the Bataan Peninsula. And so they had a good long 80 or so kilometer march to the nearest railhead. And the Japanese simply didn't have the vehicles available to take them there. No one had made any preparations because they never expected to have to deal with this kind of a capitulation on this scale. So they made the march, the famous, the infamous death march, where sadly many thousands of them fail to cope with the rigors and they die. That sets the tone and forever after the Japanese treatment of prisoners of war because it's based on a cultural understanding that was so fundamentally alien from that of the West that to surrender was a, a completely unacceptable act which deprived you of any status as a human being worth taking seriously, let alone as a soldier with rights guaranteed by any conventions. Much could be left up to the discretion of the individual Japanese commanders because the system really had no psychological or operational way to cope with this. So too much was left up to that. 
It's interesting to hear these observations from Brian and then hear Jaya describe the early days of incarceration in Changi. And let's talk about Changi prison because it's it's a slightly strange, it's not prison, it's, it's slightly different, isn't it, the way it's all set up. Uh, describe it, if you would. What is it like? When you talk about uh, Changi, you've got to realise that uh, there are two aspects to it. One is the prison itself, Changi Jail, mm. which then uh, becomes the area that civilian internees are kept. You've got about close to 4,500. Um, and, and what happens is uh, you have the men and women separated in different blocks. Uh, boys are with their parents until the age of 12, and then they get transferred to the men's block. Now, the whole Changi prison, uh, Changi Peninsula becomes a POW camp. Yeah. So all the other old camps in Changi, uh, such as um, uh, Kitchener Barracks uh, and, and so forth, uh, they become holding grounds for POWs. Mm. So you have Changi prison with the civilian internees, and then you have the rest of the peninsula becoming one vast cantonment of a POW camp for the military prisoners. Uh, and eventually, uh, you get a, get the military prisoners being distributed to other parts of Singapore and then out of Singapore to other places. Um, when It's a holding camp. It, it becomes a holding camp, certainly. All the, all the British and Australian units get, transfer, get transferred over there and they settle in mm. uh, and life becomes... Uh, a little bit more organized. The Japanese, to reduce their own command problems, uh, do a strange thing. They ask the Brits to police themselves. So in the initial stage, it is actually uh, quite a civil arrangement in the sense that uh, all the horror stories you hear about Kranji actually emanate more from the from the deaf railway camps than anything else. Yeah. And, and Changi is well organized. Uh, you have an army that maintains discipline. The, uh, the Brits and the Australians maintain discipline. Officers hold their positions. Uh, there are work parties being sent out and down. And in the initial few months, at least there were necessary food supplies. Yeah. This, of course, starts to dwindle as time goes on. Um, and, and is it true that they also, that the, the POWs themselves were the ones that put the barbed wires around the camps? Very much so. Yeah. You see, the thing is, Unlike in Germany, where if you escape from a German POW camp, you can put on civilian attire and try to mingle with the population. Yes. Where are you going to escape in Singapore mm. and in the middle of Southeast Asia if you are Australian or Brit? Mm. As you step out, you, you stick out like a sore thumb. Mm. and you can't actually mingle with the local population. So the Japanese fears initially were that these guys aren't going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and there was that willingness to give, to allow the military units to organize their own, in a sense, their own incarceration yeah. uh, with, uh, at, with organizing the work routines and eventually the work camps that were required. All this changed, of course, uh, when the Selarang incident takes place. The Selarang incident. After four men were captured trying to escape, all prisoners were ordered to sign a document promising that they will not attempt to escape. They refused. In order to pressurise them to sign, 16,000 men were forced into one barracks, Selerang Barracks, 
which was designed to accommodate just 800. David Nelson, a 52-year-old New Zealand civil engineer and First World War Flying Corps veteran, describes the scene. We're getting no food issued by the IJA, the Imperial Japanese Army, and we're on half rations. The food we brought in ourselves, and we're only allowed enough water for cooking. None at all for washing, cleaning our teeth or shaving, and none to drink. I wonder how long it can last. The overcrowding was almost inconceivable. Once we'd all turned in at night, no one could move. There was no possible chance every inch of floor was being slept on. The buildings were each about 120 feet long by 80 feet wide, and each one had a thousand men in it. The remaining 9,000 slept on the parade ground. One veteran calculated the population density was one million per square mile. Inevitably, disease spread in such overcrowded conditions, dysentery and diphtheria. After the medical teams warned that the death rate would soon be catastrophic, senior officers ordered all soldiers to sign the no-escape form after a three-day standoff. Many, in an act of final defiance, signed with fictitious names such as Mickey Mouse, Robin Hood and Ned Kelly. After the Selerang incident, prisoners were relocated back to different barracks around the Changi Peninsula. The prisoners did their best to make their captive life tolerable. There were concert parties, theatrical productions, and a Changi university with lessons on an impressive variety of subjects. In the fortnight following the Selerang incident, Harold Atchley, a young intelligent officer, attended lectures on music and 19th century literature, read Jane Eyre, Vanity Fair, and a book on Russian history. He saw a production of a new play, I Killed the Count, and listened to a concert with music composed by Handel, Chopin and Bach. One of the musicians, Dennis East, played violin with the London Philharmonic before the war. Here's Jair telling more about this aspect of life in Changi. The uh, multitude of talent waiting to be used, from uh, concert parties where performances were put up and stage were put up, uh, performances that not only the POWs enjoyed, but even the Japanese did. Mm. And um, chapels and churches were set up, mm. uh, something that the Japanese never interfered with, where religion was concerned, uh, and where there were skill sets such as setting up a rubber factory, for example, because many of the volunteers were rubber plantation managers. And they actually got a rubber factory going and they started creating uh, whatever they needed for themselves and the camp. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of innovation. There was a lot of effort put in making life more livable. And there was lots of sports. Major Frank Murray, a young doctor recently graduated from Queen's University Belfast, was a keen sportsman. Murray kept a diary in Changi, written in the form of letters to his fiancée, and he wrote in those early months, I've lived for nearly a year in Malayan rubber plantations. This camp is a welcome change. It's spacious, and often there are palm trees on either side of the road. There's a huge padang 20 yards from my door. Football, hockey, cricket and baseball pitches. It's unbelievably pretty for a prisoner of war camp. 
and a few weeks later he wrote, have been selected to play cricket for the regiment tomorrow. I could never manage a game of cricket during my year of Malaya. Now I'm to play as a prisoner of war. Much to his disappointment, Murray was not selected for the England-Australia Ashes series a month later. Those selected included an Australian who had played in a real Ashes series in England only four years earlier in 1938. Nevertheless, England, I'm glad to say, won the Changi Ashes series. Gardening was also popular, especially as a way to add some variety to the rice-heavy diet, as was swimming in the beach at Changi. However, it was whilst enjoying this particular activity that some men were given a sober reminder that this was not a holiday camp, and that life in wartime Singapore was still precarious. I'm at Changi Beach Park. It's a very peaceful spot. Around me people are cycling, walking, jogging, swimming, fishing. Eighty years ago, this was also a very popular spot with the prisoners of war. They could escape from the drudgery of their captivity and come here and swim in the sea. But they didn't always have the water to themselves. As Colonel Carrie Outram, a 42-year-old English artillery officer from Lancashire, recalls. We could go down to the sea about half a mile away and bathe, which was most enjoyable, provided one avoided the dead Chinese who kept floating in on every tide. There were three of them one day, about a hundred yards offshore, and we avoided swimming into them. This was no doubt evidence of the Changi Beach Massacre. It was part of the Suk Ching, which roughly translates as to purge or to cleanse. It was operation by the Japanese military in February 1942 to purge the population of any potential resistance against the new regime. The majority of the victims were young Chinese men, and it's estimated that perhaps up to 20 or 25,000 people were rounded up during this period and then taken to isolated spots like Changi Beach and shot. The prisoners were sent out to work all around Singapore. The best jobs were to be had on the docks, where there was plenty of opportunity to steal anything that could be consumed or sold on the black market. And there was a thriving black market in Singapore and Changi. Stanley Pavillard, a 29-year-old doctor who'd studied medicine in Madrid and Edinburgh and had enlisted with the Straits Settlement Volunteer Forces, recalls that trade. Thousands of minor rackets and swindles were being organised among the prisoners of Changi. Every day, various parties of men left the camp to work in Singapore under Japanese guards and to collect rations. And they used to bring back with them all kinds of desirable items, which could be flooded around the barrack blocks afterwards at fantastic black market prices. Very few people seem to have any sense of decency or any interest in the principles of fair shares for all. People lived by their cunning and their wits and sometimes by military seniority. The weak ones went under. 
and life got tougher as the months dragged on. Physically and mentally, the men deteriorated the longer they remained in captivity. Boredom, hunger, and a burning desire to get home ate away at the men. Here's David Nelson, our Kiwi Flying Corps veteran, describing his diet towards the end of his captivity. 15th of March. We're now on half rations. Have been for almost a week. Yesterday we boiled up a pot full of hibiscus leaves and then fried them up. This evening we fried up some roots of a papaya tree we dug up. No Red Cross food has arrived in camp yet, and we're hungry all the time. 16th. Worked all day as usual. Cooked up some seaweed for dinner. It wasn't bad. 17th. Work, morning, off colour after lunch. More seaweed for dinner. 18th. Food, now very light indeed. Hibiscus leaves for lunch. I recall that Jaya mentioned that when we discussed malnutrition in the camps. So talking about Changi, Changi has given its name to a peculiar condition, which I think is due to lack of food, which is Changi balls. Yes. What is Changi balls? Well, Changi balls is the um, infection that sets around the scrotum yeah. area. Yeah. And, and you, for a man, that can be pretty awful. Yeah. All right. And, and this is largely due to malnutrition. Um, now, it's amazing how uh, there was a need to find ways to overcome all these diseases that were not common before among the troops. So they're berry, all berry down, and, and, and they're all down to lack of food, berry, lack berry, of food, and berry, berry scabies, yeah. uh, all, all that set in. Mm. Um, I remember uh, how uh, to improve the diet and increase the resistance, the doctors felt that what needed to be eaten were hibiscus leaves and flowers, mm. all right, because they were rich in vitamins. I've got it. Uh, and soldiers refused to do that. So they came up with a smart idea. And uh, they told the men that, you know, this malnutrition is going to lead to impotence. And if you have hibiscus leaves and, and, <laughs> and a flower, you are saved. And not a single hibiscus bush was left unmolested after that. <laughs> So they came up with their own solutions to the yeah. uh, mm -hmm. sufferings that they faced at Changi. Yeah. You had uh, Changi balls, you had uh, happy feet, where your feet uh, was constantly had to be moved so that you, you don't feel it uh, was itchy and painful. Uh, uh, all those things were created because of malnutrition. Yes. And I'm told Marmite was another thing that helped enormously. It was. It was uh, much treasured and looked at uh, and uh, desired on the black market. The Japanese weren't going to allow the prisoners to remain idle. In the same month that Murray was happily playing cricket, Hideki Tojo, the Minister of War, made a decision in Tokyo that would seal the fate of many of the men in Changi. All prisoners were to take part in forced labour. Men were sent to work throughout Asia, in shipyards, docks and coal fields, building airfields, roads and of course railways. For many of the prisoners in Changi, it meant a trip north to work on the death railway. Some were sent by ship to Burma, most went by rail to Thailand. 
and you can imagine the conditions on board. They were not as horrific as, say, uh, the trains that uh, took the Jews towards Auschwitz, mm. you know, where they were just locked up. Uh, wherever they stopped, they were given an opportunity to step down and then climb back on and so forth. But it was a tough journey. Uh, and so their introduction to the Deaf Railway was one of increasing demoralization yeah. uh, and conditions becoming worse and worse uh, and then increasing hardship after they got off the train yards uh, and, and realizing that they were being transferred to a whole different level of existence um, and then realizing that this was going to be long term. This is what they had come to. Um, and of course, men died like flies under those conditions. Yes, I think that's a very good way of describing it, that slow realisation that they're going to another depth of hell here. That, that, and so many of them, that when they return back to Changi, they describe it as, as paradise and a palace, and they're just overjoyed to be back at Changi because they realise, compared to... What the they were at. Yes. In terms of relative... Uh, you know, uh, conditions. Changi was heaven on earth. Around 60,000 prisoners of war travelled north to work on the death railway. Over 12,000 would not return. Next time on Death Railway Revisited, I'll follow that same rail journey from Singapore through Malaysia and into Thailand. Along the way, I will meet people who'll tell me much, much more about the railway and find out that it was not just prisoners of war who were forced to work on the railway. I hope you'll join me. If you're finding this podcast interesting, please visit the website www.deathrailwayrevisited.com where you'll find more information and photos of the location I visited. This podcast is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive account of the Death Railway. It's based on what I saw and who I spoke to. So if you'd like to know more, there's a suggested reading and watching list on the website as well. I do hope you find them interesting.